Hi, Mary. How are you doing? Not bad, Dan. Thanks. How are you? Good, thank you. Have you read many Q1 investment reports yet? I've seen one or two. Fair to say we're living in unprecedented times. But big question for me is, is it a black swan or a falling angel? Well, indeed. And are we more worried about credit bifurcation or price dislocations? (laughs) Probably enough of the jargon bingo, Dan, given we're an anti-jargon podcast after all. Indeed. Welcome to Investment Uncut. In Investment Uncut, we cut through the noise when it comes to investing. We're digging deeper to try and bring clarity to your investment decisions. I'm Dan Mikulskis. And I'm Mary Spencer. Investment Uncut is brought to you by the investment team at LCP. LCP provide investment advice to some of the largest institutional investors in the UK, including pension funds, wealth managers and sovereign funds. Find out more at lcp.uk.com. So this week on Investment Uncut, we are joined for the second time by investment consultant Natalie Brain. Natalie, welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad to be back. Natalie, could you just remind the readers what your role is at LCP? Yes, absolutely. So as well as working on various client teams across various different pieces of work, I'm also part of our macroeconomic research team. So speaking to lots of different economists and forming LCP's central outlook and asset class views. Great. So Natalie, last time we spoke to you, I think it was back in maybe mid-January or something, you were telling us about some of your more creative endeavours that you get up to outside work, including pottery. How's that been coming on? Have you made any big creations since last time and are you still able to do it in the current environment? Well, unfortunately, I'm not able to get out and do it on lockdown. So I suppose sticking to other creative outlets that I can do at home, as well as I'm sure a lot of other people are doing a lot of home renovations and house decorating as well. You haven't got a pottery wheel in your garage or something? Unfortunately not. Not yet. That'd be lovely, wouldn't it? Yeah, Yeah, weird. Great. So getting on to the main theme of the episode, Natalie, I mean, we spoke to you back in January on the subject of macro forecasting. And of course, you and your team had spent a long time putting together this great forecast for the year. Even while the ink was drying on it, the whole thing went out the window, basically, didn't it? Pretty much. Yeah. I think it's fair to say 2020 hasn't turned out as we'd thought when we started the year. Yeah, I think that's right. And I guess maybe I, maybe slightly unfairly, gave you a little bit of a, a hard time when we spoke last time. You know, I'm a little bit cynical of economic forecasts, as you may have picked up. For that reason, I think quite often they do get thrown out. But you sort of, you did manage to convince me a little bit, and some of the value is in the reforecasting quite dynamically as you go along, rather than simply sticking one forecast out there and kind of standing behind it. So why don't you talk us through how you've approached that over the last couple of months? I mean, how have you managed to get your arms around what's going on to come up with any kind of forecast that that seems sensible? Yeah, I mean, it has been very difficult, given everything that's going on. And I suppose we've cast our net very wide in terms of who we're speaking to, where we're getting input into our usual processes to form our central outlook. And we've just spent a a lot of time looking in at a lot of different places to try and get a grasp of what we think are the right things to pull from that, what we think central or most likely outlook is, and, and form our own judgment and opinion as best we can in an environment where everything is changing so quickly and is so unknown. And who are some of those people we're talking to? So what is it, asset managers, banks, what, central banks, independent economic forecasting firms? Is that roughly who we're talking about there? Yeah, that's right. So getting input from all those places. So it's who we talk to 
directly as generally economists at a lot of different asset managers, but we subscribe to a lot of independent economic research providers, have fun going through central bank policy minutes and pull from everywhere really. And have you found that there's a lot of consistency or inconsistency in what you're hearing across different sources? They always tend to vary a bit and I think it's developed differently. So I I suppose there were quite more different views at the start. I think things became a bit more similar as situation progressed and as lockdown rules became clearer and in different and in more places. Is that because some people were forecasting a very quick recovery at the start, just, just to be clear, and then that kind of went away? Or what do you mean by that? Yeah, that's right. So some people were forecasting a quicker recovery. And a lot of the outlook all does form or, or come down to views for lockdowns, views for how long they'll last for, when they'll be lifted, how they'll be lifted. And at the moment, in particular, just how exit strategies will be managed is the biggest question that will shape and and change outlook from here. And what's the sort of range out there that you're seeing then in terms of people's estimates for those times? And I suppose we were talking global here as well, aren't we? So there's obviously a lot of focus on the news on the UK lockdown policy, but presumably that's not necessarily the most relevant from a global economic perspective either. Yeah, absolutely. So I suppose we've got a couple of cases of regions that are ahead of us in terms of the lockdown process. So we've seen how things have gone on in Wuhan in in China. We're starting to see how strategies are changing in Europe and then we'll probably follow after that. So we've seen seven week type structures. So 14 weeks overall was what we're looking at in China. Some forecasts of that being about eight weeks in terms of lockdown and then lockdown being removed in Europe. So we could be looking at four months. But there's also thoughts out there that it will be a lot longer than that, kind of needing phased exit strategies for quite a long time, kind of towards the end of the year are some thoughts. And so from now, it's just a bit unknown. Is that saying that the range of forecasts is pretty much goes from the middle of the year to the end of the year in terms of the range of estimates for when we're going to be coming out of it? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. And I suppose in some ways, this is an interesting time to be doing forecasts simply because in any normal world, if you're 0.1% off for your GDP forecast, that's sort of wrong. Whereas if you're within a couple of months of the lockdown, then that might be counted as right. And if you've got your GDP within 5%, then you're actually doing quite well. I mean, yeah, sort of all bets are off, right, in terms of forecasting. So everyone gets to kind of just come up with something from almost from scratch, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. So as I said, with so much unknown at the moment and length of lockdown, exit strategies and everything, I think it's hard to form a clear view or have a, a definitive view is that very kind of evolving process, which is how we do things and how we approach things, um, which is going to I guess, continue throughout this year for, for most, I'd say. And I think generally, Natalie, you speak to the economist that you're speaking to on a sort of rolling quarterly basis. Have you made that more frequent now because things are moving so quickly or how have you sort of tackled the process element of how you gather the data and form your views? This quarter we had probably double the amount of calls that we typically do and so that was stretched out over a longer period than we normally would undertake our research in. We get so many regular updates from those we speak to and other providers that I've mentioned that we've got a lot which tides us over in between. I suppose we've completed our big round of research for now, but obviously very closely looking at everything that's going on. We could set up other calls if needed in the shorter term, but pausing for now and then we'll pick back up a bit later on. 
You've already talked about the sort of end game for lockdown, if you like, as one of the things you've been looking at. What are the other key things that you think go into that wider global economic forecast at this point? So that one, I'd say, is the biggest and the most important, really, but also how far it spreads to other parts of the world. So emerging markets in particular are very vulnerable if the virus does spread and and take hold in those regions, just simply with weaker healthcare systems, lower abilities to social distance or work from home as effectively as developed markets. So that's definitely another key one that we're looking at. What about things like international movement of people and goods and those sort of things? Or are you taking that as part of the of the first point around coming out of lockdown? I think that's all woven into, yeah, coming out of lockdown and these exit strategies. It's just incredibly difficult to plan or forecast how those are going to go with the other key risk being that there is just a strong second wave of the virus if lockdowns lifted too quickly, if exit strategies aren't managed well. And that's another key risk that we see. And when do you think we'd start to get more clarity? Because it feels like we know more than maybe than we did a month ago in terms of when the lockdowns might be lifted. There's a few signs of things happening here and there in Europe now. As you say, in China, they're a bit further ahead. Presumably in another month's time, we'll have a little bit more information on how that's panning out. So we will be getting new information fairly quickly that allow you to update those views. Yes, exactly. It's that continual process. So as you say, seeing how things go in Europe with some of the country lockdowns being softened and then lifted potentially, and then we'll see how that goes, feeds onto what's happening here and in the US as well. Presumably also government intervention or sort of government action is going to play quite strongly into both the sort of shorter term and the longer term. So is that another relevant factor you're looking at there, Natalie? Is that government policy and central bank support? There's been exceptional, exceptionally large amounts of support. So both um, in terms of monetary policy from central banks, it's just been huge moves and they've been very quick, which we do see as a, a huge support for, for markets. We've already seen that come through and support sentiment, kind of supporting the rebounds that we've seen over recent weeks and also really significant support from governments across the world, both in terms of the support that they're giving to companies through loans or grants or potential for bailouts and also to individuals in terms of furloughing schemes, which are done very well in Europe and also some direct payments that we've been seen seen in other places, such as in Hong Kong and, and Japan. And I guess that all points to short-term support, but on the longer term, that needs to presumably be unwound in some way. So what could the longer-term implications of that be? Yeah, so that is a very interesting question because I think it is going to take a long time for all this support to be unwound and it will be a very slow and gradual process. It's just been huge how much policy has been pumped in and, and how quickly. And there are questions as to whether things can return to normal. Is this a new normal? Can all this policy support be removed? And in terms of policy, I suppose Japan is ahead of a lot of other regions in terms of what steps it's taking with its policy. And they just haven't removed much or been able to remove a lot. So whether we're headed in that direction as well is one big question. And in terms of how all these things feed through into our actual economic scenarios, do you see a lot of the stimulus is taking away some of the downside scenarios? Is that how you're seeing that playing out? So in our central case scenario, we definitely have the significant policy support is doing a lot to help the gradual recovery. Perhaps at this stage, it's worth me talking through our three different scenarios. And just to remind any listeners who are on on last time or weren't, the way we think about our outlook is three different scenarios. 
So our central case scenario, our upside scenario and a downside scenario. And this is really summarizing what our outlook is over the next 12 to 18 months for the global economy. So I'll, I'll talk you through our central case scenario, which is that there is a global recession with a, a gradual recovery. So that's really, we've spoken about a lot of different shapes of global growth and shapes of recovery this quarter. We've heard all sorts of different descriptions, but I'd say our central case is probably like a V-shape, but with a more gradual sloping second half and a lower leg. Like a Nike tick, that sort of thing. Yes, a Nike swoosh. Or is it more of a reverse check mark? I've heard that talked about as well, like a reverse tick where it doesn't come up quite as high as it goes down. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's right. So like that as well. Yep. Maybe you call it a square root or something or reverse square root. Sorry. <laughs> no, Dan, jargon, yeah. jargon down. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I'd say that that's what our central case is. So just with the global economy contracting very sharply, this coming through kind of at the end of Q1, continuing into Q2, but then a gradual recovery after that. And a lot of that gradual recovery is really driven and supported by everything we're seeing from central banks and from governments in way of support. So in terms of overall global growth, I suppose we're seeing forecasts for about negative 3% this year. That's a fall from about plus 3% what we were looking at from last year or the start of this year. It's about 6% overall. Which doesn't necessarily sound massive, but that is pretty massive, isn't it? Because if you go back to sort of 2008, I can't remember exactly what the numbers were, but that's similar, isn't it, to the sort of falls we saw back then, right? Yeah. So we are seeing this as being more severe than what we had in 2008. It's happened more quickly and very sharp and just widespread global issue. We are seeing things being more severe. And this also is a very deflationary crisis that we're facing. So we've just got significant falls in consumption levels. We've got lower levels of demand that's driving lower prices. We've also had on the other side, very volatile moves in oil markets and commodities. And so we've had much lower commodity prices coming through as well. So that's feeding in. Unemployment will rise as well. So that's another big factor out there, particularly in the US where there isn't the furloughing scheme in place, as as I've mentioned. And we've seen a lot of that already, haven't we? The numbers coming out of the US are looking particularly extreme. Yeah, exactly. That's right. So we've already seen big pickups and do expect that to continue. And also for that to last for quite some time, it will be, again, a gradual process to bring those unemployment levels back down. They will be higher for some time to come. Yeah, and I suppose that's it, isn't it? I mean, so you're saying first part of the forecast is pretty deep global recession, but then the important second part is what does the recovery leg look like in terms of timings? We're talking into next year until we're getting back to sort of similar levels. How are you seeing that? So we're seeing a gradual recovery through the second half of the year. But right, of 2020. Of 2020, yeah. That is very dependent on how we come out of lockdown and those exit strategies. I suppose our downside scenario would be that things aren't managed very well. There's a second wave of the virus, as I've mentioned, or that things take hold in emerging markets much more severely than expected. And then we could see either a W shape global growth or an L shape if things flatline for a bit longer. And I guess one of the other things that you look at when you produce your sort of central upside and downside scenarios is the sort of the likelihood of each of those scenarios occurring. Have you changed those sorts of splits in light of the recent events? 
Yeah, that's right. Now, one thing we have done with our probabilities this quarter is what we tend to have ranges of them. And we've had to widen those this quarter because things are just so, so unknown. So probably the midpoint of our central case is around 55%, downsides around 30% and upside, which would be a very sharp V, very quick recovery back to levels that we saw before the crisis that would be about 15%, the midpoint of the range. But we are putting quite wide ranges around those just to account for how hugely uncertain it is. Yeah, as I'm sure everyone is. Exactly. I suppose one of those ironies of forecasting, isn't it? The one time that everyone is most in need of forecasts is the one time where they're most uncertain and it's hardest to say anything, but still useful to say what you can say, I think is important. Well, how about when you talk about the shock to global demand and consumption and those sort of things? So are you saying that you're seeing in the central case, you're seeing consumption sort of bounce back as the lockdowns are removed? Or is there a case that consumption won't bounce back even if the lockdowns are, are removed on schedule? Yeah, so the point around inflation and consumption levels is a really interesting one. I think in our central case, again, there would be a gradual recovery in inflation, but there's a lot of factors that will put downward pressure on that for a long time to come. One of those just being the level of unemployment. And as I said, we do expect that to continue for some time. And that will just generally lead to this lower level of demand and consumption carrying on for some time to come. We have done quite a lot of thinking about what the longer term outlook for inflation is. What do things look like in kind of, yeah, a couple of years time, given all the supportive policy that's out there. So with a lot of kind of money being printed, you might expect, oh, wait, are we facing higher inflation? Is that going to come through quickly? How will that work? But the two dynamics are, I guess, yeah, working in different directions. And it's really hard to see what the outlook will be like in a couple of years. But there's definitely a lot of those deflationary factors that I think override the fear for definitely getting higher inflation. So like we've had, we had the same concerns post 2008 crisis when we had QE being introduced then, but huge levels of globalisation, flexible working contracts, the shift to online, all of these are factors which have brought inflation down. Um, And we expect that very much to continue, as well as that unemployment and economies not operating at full capacity being another drag. It's a super interesting point, isn't it? Because of course, the inflation hawks were out in force really in all the years since 2008 in sort of calling for higher inflation, which has kind of never materialized. The Economist had a good piece, I think it was the week before last, sort of maybe saying that there's just this tendency to work on outdated models that hark back to the 70s and and are constantly assuming there's going to be inflation when things might have changed that aren't going to cause it. So it is interesting, that sort of debate. I think I saw the last weekend, Bank of America put out a call for gold to go to 3000 or something on that same basis saying, you know, there's huge money printing, there's going to be inflation. And yeah, there's that sense that kind of, well, I've heard that before and it's not quite how things worked out, I guess. Absolutely. And it's one that's, yeah, really important to, and we've, we've spent quite a lot of time looking into and we'll continue to do so just to see that. But we've had a world of low numbers for quite some years now. I definitely think that is set to continue with lower interest rates, inflation looking low. Um, that's what we're what we're facing. It's also interesting to think through. I mean, I suppose you mentioned the move to online even before all of this happened. And now we're all working remotely and most of our shopping's done online. And I guess it's a bit of an almost thought experiment to what the normal looks like after this all 
stopped once we're not in lockdown will I still buy most things online because I got used to it will I still work from home more often than I did before because it got a proper setup now and, and all that sort of stuff I guess that's those are implications that it's probably too soon to say on sort of how society works after all of this yeah absolutely but they are really big themes I think so the shift online is only set to continue and pick up potentially that has big knock-on implications for certain asset classes like property will that change the dynamic of offices and then also the question around globalization generally so that's another kind of key theme that we're focused on to try and get a bit of a grip on what things look like when we come out of this well, that's a really good point, actually. Yeah. So, I was wondering you expand on that because there's various people saying conflicting things about where, how that could pan out coming out of this. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, in the short term, there is a lot, obviously, there's a lot of challenges to trade and globalization. And whether that does mean that more companies want to relocate supply chains closer together and more locally, there's definitely the risk of that. That is very expensive to do. So, it would likely be through kind of less future investment going into overseas or further further locations for supply chains but we could definitely see more of that so supply chains coming closer together and that kind of trend i think also on a sector level there's going to be big shifts in just how things work so we've spoken about shift online but travel leisure i think there's going to be quite a lot of shifts that come through as a result of this because I mean, travel has been booming before this, right? For a good couple of decades, I guess, sort of hand in hand in some ways with the rise of a kind of wealthier middle class in China. Travel globally has been a great sort of sector. Maybe not, could change. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Are there any other themes coming out of the conversations you've been having, Natalie, that we've not touched on? We've touched on a, a lot of the, yeah, a lot of the themes with both um, kind of outlook for growth, higher unemployment, inflation being low, interest rates remaining lower for longer, deflationary crisis. I suppose in terms of the huge amounts of fiscal policy that we've seen, we've got budget deficits set to increase and government debt levels set to increase. It's very hard to know, again, what that looks like as we move further out. Could we see higher taxes come through in future to recoup some of that? Maybe. Could that have implications for big implications for companies and have negative out kind of impact on equities? Could do, but it's very hard to look kind of too far ahead at the moment and is all unknown. But we are asking a lot of those kind of questions. Absolutely. Okay. Well, I mean, the two things you highlighted you were looking at last time we spoke, Natalie, were the US election and Brexit. And both of those things sound a lot less relevant than they did when we spoke a couple of months ago, right? Are they still relevant at all to global economics or how would you factor those in now? Things have changed hugely, obviously. And yeah, that does put things for, for those two events, if I call them that, into perspective a little bit. In terms of Brexit, I mean, this year was meant to be the year of trade negotiations. There are reports of virtual meetings and virtual trade negotiations going ahead. In my mind, I think it would seem as though the sensible thing to do would be to extend the transition period. Um, the deadline for that's the end of June. And that would seem to be the most sensible thing to do, given the circumstances and what the whole region, both the UK and Europe, is facing. We haven't had that kind of signposted yet. So the UK is still saying negotiations going ahead, transition period to end at the end of the year. But we will see how that unfolds over the next couple of months as that deadline approaches. 
Yeah, I mean, one of my worries has been that it's probably the most economically sensible thing to do, but it's a political decision, isn't it? And it could easily be that the politics doesn't match up with the economics there. So that potentially poses quite a risk that it's the politics that overwhelms that and goes down a suboptimal path economically, right? Yes, exactly. And that's the challenge and where there's, I guess, a lot of treading carefully in terms of messaging and what's happening with it. But I agree. I think the sensible thing to do would be to extend, but whether or not that will happen, we don't know yet. Would you go as far as to say that the central expectation around is that it will extend? And so if suddenly at the end of June, it didn't extend, that would be quite a bad shock. Is that fair to say? Or the expectation is not formed strongly enough yet? I don't think the expectations form strongly enough in markets or in kind of consensus view for what will happen. That's kind of my view on it, I suppose. End of June at this point is like long term, right? I mean, it's so far <laughs> off that you may as well just. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, we'll see what happens before then. I think when we spoke before, you were sort of saying the feeling was that Europe wouldn't be particularly happy with a request to extend, but possibly, I guess, recent events mean they might be a bit more accommodating to that sort of request. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, there's a lot of, I suppose, yeah, Europe's facing a lot of challenges as well, a lot of different ways. So it's time of stress for everyone. So yeah, as you say, it would work in there, could work in their interest as well. Isn't the issue that both sides almost certainly want to extend, but neither side wants to be the one to ask for it and to push for it? Europe doesn't want to be labelled as the one pushing for the extension by the UK public, and the UK government definitely don't want to be seen to do a climb down and ask for an extension. So there needs to be some face-saving fudge from both sides in order to get us where we, we need to go, which isn't impossible, I guess. No. Yeah, yeah, that's true. And then talking about things in the far distant future, November this year is the US election, isn't it? Which at the start of the year was looking like a big event. Yes, that's right. So when we last spoke, we didn't know who Trump would be running against, which we do know now is Joe Biden. But outlook for um, the election, yeah, it's hugely uncertain. I mean, there's questions about logistics of can it and will it actually happen right. in terms of people getting getting out to vote. I think there's difficulties by different states having different laws or about that. So whether they'll rule if people can or, or can't go out to vote, and um, it's a bit unknown at the moment, or whether there'll be other ways of them kind of processing that. So I think time frame is looking quite difficult. It's also probably not what Trump would have wanted going into this year, where you'd hope for markets to be happy, the economy to be stable, things to look under control. So it's quite a difficult environment for, I suppose, for him going into it and very unknown outlook in terms of how it will pan out and hard to tell what the population's view on how he's handled it or how it should be handled is very hard to judge. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? In a way, he's got something else to blame. <laughs> you know, if the economy isn't in top shape when November or whenever it actually happens comes around, there's a very obvious thing he can point to that's not really his fault, which potentially is helpful. Yeah, that's true. I suppose it's, yeah, the balance of if he can be criticised of how he's handled it versus that, yeah, being something, like you say, that's out of his out of his control. And yeah, I mean, I suppose a lot of people have said US elections these days tend to be more about rallying your base and firing up your base rather than trying to win over the undecided sort of swing voter, which arguably doesn't sort of really exist anymore. It's always been the case that Trump has had this solid base of support at around 20, 30% or something pretty much throughout everything, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Are people venturing forecasts at this point on the US election? I don't mean whether it's going to happen or not. I mean, who's going to win in terms of any sense of the percent chances either way? Or is that just too far off and everything too unknown? 
I'd say too unknown at this stage. Yeah, it wasn't something that we focused on or, or spent a lot of time on our latest round of research. So there will be the usual kind of popularity polls going on so we can keep an eye on on those. But I think a bit too early to say at the moment. Because the, the actual vote is November, right? Is that right yes, that's right. Yep. They obviously rely on doing quite a lot of campaigning in the, in the months running up to that, really. So they presumably you'd normally expect to see that starting fairly soon, which in a normal time, which obviously it can't do as long as they're as long as they've got those lockdowns in place. So I suppose it's not just a question of the November date working; it's a question of how the whole run up to it is going to function in a more distant social world. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, kind of unprecedented situation. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> but I guess Trump needing to do the sort of daily briefings, he gets him exposure that Joe Biden potentially doesn't get. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, he gets a lot of FaceTime and a lot of yeah presence throughout this time, which is in the mind of voters. That's what I've been thinking. I mean, you would say it would go against him because it's taken away the stock market gains and everything that he likes to trumpet so loudly, but he's on TV every day getting to look like a leader in front of the people. And you'd have thought that definitely counts for something in this kind of situation. Yeah, absolutely. Great. So Natalie, what are some of the forward-looking things you can signpost that you're going to be listening out for in terms of key economic kind of releases and information that could have, could affect the views? In terms of forward-looking things, I suppose PMIs is one thing that we do keep an eye on. So purchasing managers indices, which is a survey of employment and output intentions in different markets. We've seen those move, but it is quite hard to give a good indication because, for instance, in China, we saw them obviously fall very sharply through lockdown and then rebound very quickly afterwards. But the rebound was just compared to the previous extremely low levels. So you can't really read too much into them when actually total activity only recovered to about 65 or 70 percent of the levels before. So keeping an eye on those, but also actual levels of GDP that are reported, Q1 Estimates will be coming out in May, so the UK on 12th of May, then Europe and US to follow after that. So keep an eye on those, but they're more backward looking in nature. So again, quite difficult to give a clear picture of what's ahead. So apart from that, then, is it just a question of constantly trying to gauge what the end game of the lockdowns is, as we've already talked about? So each month, get a sense of which countries are getting closer to coming out of it, and that'll affect the shape of the recovery and the forecast. Yeah, exactly. So seeing how yeah exit strategies are managed, what kind of time frame we're looking at, how quickly activity can pick up or try to get back to levels that we saw before. Whether they will get back to that level is another question of debate, but definitely keeping an eye on everything, how things are developing and picking up over the next few months. Yeah, right. Lots to keep me busy. And so, Natalie, one of the, I guess, outputs of our macroeconomic work is thinking about the outlook for specific asset classes. Now, I know we spoke to Matt on last week's episode about this a bit, but just kind of one liner, what looks attractive at the moment? The big kind of set of upgrades in our asset class views are all in credit markets. So we are seeing credit markets as having the most attractive opportunities at the moment. I'd say that's our um, standout change that we've made over the last quarter. And that's across investment grade corporate bonds, high yield corporate bonds and all the sort of related strategies. Yep, that's right. So pretty much across the board. And we've upgraded multi-asset credit up to a double plus, which is a way that we think is a really good way to access these markets and pick out the best opportunities from what's, I guess, is from challenging or challenged sectors. That approach works well. 
And just as a reminder, we were slightly negative on that at the start of the year, just simply because the available yields on those had, had narrowed quite a lot. And there was this sense that we were sort of late cycle, whereas now clearly world's changed a lot. Cycle, I guess, has ended, right? And those yields are now much wider. Chance of default, obviously a lot higher as well, but we're seeing that as being fair compensation for the defaults. Yeah, that's right. Absolutely. So getting that a level of compensation that we do think is fair for that higher level of risk, but it's the much more attractive yields out there. And a quick comment maybe on equities. Yes. So we had a lot of debate about equities as we often do. We've kept equity assets as a single plus. So that's across developed markets and emerging markets. While we do think there is a bit of there is some potential for further falls in the shorter term. So if we're looking about kind of the next six months ahead, but our asset class views are formed over two to three years. So we're looking over that period. Valuations have come down a bit and are a bit more attractive. Not hugely so, particularly in the US, still looking quite expensive. Over our, our time frame, we've got them as, as a single plus. And UK equities as well, because that had come up to a single plus, hadn't it? We'd had been a little bit negative on it. We'd sort of leveled that off the same as global equities. How are we seeing that now? Because they've obviously done a little bit worse than global equities have. Yeah, that's right. Um, So we did bring that up the quarter before this one, but we have left it the same, just the not being material or significant difference in our our outlook, essentially. Great. Right. So Natalie, just as a winding up then, how can our listeners get access to your thoughts, find your staff and things you write? So on the LCP website or on LinkedIn. And Natalie, do you have any new recommendations for the listeners? Books, films, TV shows? Got another podcast to recommend, actually. So The Missing Crypto Queen is an interesting podcast and definitely gets you quite hooked. So I'd recommend that one. Fantastic. Great. Are you doing more or less podcast listening than normal, would you say? Less. I don't have my long journeys, which I use to listen to podcasts a lot, but... Still, yeah, managing to fit them in where I can. Good stuff. Natalie, we'll spare you the lightning round this time. You did that last time. But final question then, what do you think has been the most underappreciated aspect of this crisis so far this year? I suppose we've already touched on central bank policy and how long it will be around. But I do think that is a really key change that we've seen come in. So just how quickly and how huge the levels of support from central banks has been. They've definitely learnt the lesson from 2008 and ramped up even more so than they did then. So both that and just how long it's going to take to remove that is the other part. Great. Well, Natalie, this has been a great conversation. Thank you so much for coming along. And we're really looking forward to hopefully getting an update from you later on in the year on how things are evolving. Great. Thanks for having me back. Thanks, Natalie. And yeah, it certainly feels like this could become quite a regular slot. That's all we've got time for this week. Please join us again next week for another episode of Investment Uncut. Our podcast is for information and marketing purposes only and does not constitute any form of investment or financial advice. For more information, please refer to our marketing privacy policy on the LCP website.